Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading Age of Opportunity by Dr. Lawrence Steinberg. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're discussing Age of Opportunity, Chapter 9. Before we start our discussion, we're going to play Show Me, You Know Me. And I thought I had a good one, and then I picked it up, and it was not good. But I'm still going to go for it. Oh, don't panic. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes. All right, Adrian. If I could choose any one of the following four scenarios, I would prefer to A, live another hundred years, but as a feeble and poor person. B, have unlimited power and resources, but only live for one more year. C, live forever but be totally dependent on others to do anything meaningful or D none of the above. I'm good with the way things are now. Um, I'm going to say D because there's no upside to any. Yeah. (laughs) The only one. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know who these people are that I understand now. I understand why you didn't want to do that. (laughs) Why would you want to live forever? If you like couldn't do anything, you couldn't do anything. At all, or live only one year but be all powerful? What? <sighs> who would ever answer any of those? I'm sorry. I'm sorry for even bringing this one up. Don't worry. <laughs> I won't hold it against you. Okay. Yeah, I have a pretty Do you have good a good one? one? <laughs> okay. And so, you know what? I actually realized that some of these, a lot of these are centered around confrontation, which is kind of like, I feel like a dead giveaway because we have already expressed many times on this podcast that that's not really like our thing. Yeah. So anyway, whatever, just go with it. Okay. When a waiter at a restaurant gets my order wrong, nothing serious, just a small mistake. I, A, always say something. I'm paying, so I want it to be perfect. B, let it slide. Let's not make a scene. C, ask someone else to tell the waiter for me. I don't like confrontations. (laughs) And that's not a hint what I said before this. D, see if someone wants to switch orders with me. It's the let it slide one. Which one was that? B? B. Yeah, right? Incorrect. (gasps) It's actually A. (laughs) You always just say something. Yeah, but I'm not like, um, 
I'm not coming from a place of like, well, I'm paying. Okay. Most of the time, if I modify food, it's because I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I really want that Cobb salad, but can I have like no bacon? And then they give it to you, you with know? bacon. And then I'm like, I can't really eat this, you know, so I have to say okay. something. Okay. But I don't really modify my food other than that. I might do like, if I get like a a burger, a veggie burger, and I ask for no pickles, but there's pickles on it, I might just eat it because I don't really hate, hate pickles. But, and sometimes I always get my dressing on the side with my salad. I always do. Yeah. And I do hate when they put the salad dressing in the salad. Yeah. And I'm like, that ruins it for me because like the whole reason I don't want that is you guys use too much, you know, so then I will return it. Okay. Yeah, I do. I return it. All. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. I'm dying to know what you do. Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Okay. I know you used to be a server, Laura. So maybe this impacts what you do. Yeah. I'm going to say you're B. Let it slide. Don't mess Oh, it. yeah. Yeah. I have. Um, let me think about the worst thing. One time I was in New York and I was eating, I had like a, I got like a bagel plate with, you know, bagel, lox, cream cheese, but it had a little side salad. And like in the salad was this giant piece. This isn't something they got wrong. This is just like gross. It was a big piece of cellophane, like saran wrap that was all like covered in the dressing and all like gross. And I just like pulled it out put it to the side, kept eating. I'm not sure if I ate the salad. I can't remember that. But I remember my friends were like, ew, send your plate back. That is disgusting. Tell them. And I was like, nope, no. <laughs> that was before I even was a server. Okay, why? What's the motivation? I'm just like... You don't want the scene? I don't is want the it? scene. I don't want to be difficult. I've always, since I was a kid, I've been really weird at mm. restaurants. Our family has six people in it. There's always missing silverware or we need more. (laughs) I would just be like hiding if someone Mm. went and grabbed the silverware off of an empty table. I'd be like, no, 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 don't do it. (laughs) I don't want anything to ever be an inconvenience for other people. I'm a people pleaser. Oh, (laughs) That's me. Like I can be inconvenienced as long as no one else is. I I always put my needs last. We're all working on things. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now I know that about you, which I love. All right. If I could be reincarnated as any other living creature, I would want to be a A, cat, B, dog, C, lion, or D, T-Rex. Oh, did not see D coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I say dog because you treat your dog so kindly. It would be so nice to be a dog in your house. You get so pampered. That's true. <laughs> Not like you can guarantee the situation. I know. You know. I know. In, exactly. I would say dog because you're such a dog lover. The answer is actually cat. Wow. I would rather be a cat. They seem so much more independent, oh. so much less reliant on like humans for their happiness. I mean, my dogs, mm. especially because I pay so much attention to them are total wrecks when I leave, you know, like I can just picture them at home just going like, Mm. where is she? Where is she? When's she coming home? Where is she? Where is she? Like they can't even sleep. They can't Mm. relax together. Yeah. You know, one of them right now is just sitting staring at the front door. I don't know who he's waiting for. Like, what's he doing? Oh my God. (laughs) Whereas like if he was a cat, he would just be sprawled out somewhere. In the sun, just sleeping. Relaxed. Mm. But, you know, like my next door neighbors have outdoor cats and that seems like a little bit of a rough life for me. So you'd I don't want to be an cat. outdoor cat. 
I want to be an indoor cat. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it could be the yeah. kind of cat I see on TikTok sometimes. There's like, I don't know why I'm always bringing up TikTok. Sorry, everyone. There's like this like very specific subgenre of TikToker, a younger girl, maybe like 22, 23. She has a very fluffy cat. Uh-huh. And there it's like a get ready with me and my cat video where they're both sitting in front of the camera and the cat just sits there so good. And then she like picks out sunglasses for herself and then like a tiny pair for the cat. And then she put a <laughs> necklace on herself and a necklace on the cat. A little kerchief for her, one for the cat. It's oh, a really gosh. cute moment. Okay. All right. I, I, so you could be that. I feel like I could be that cat. Also, I wanted to tell you, I was listening to a podcast last week. It was a little bit old, like from a few weeks ago. And they started talking about the North Sea TikTok and they were doing the song. They were like, yo. (laughs) And I still, I still have not looked it up because I haven't opened TikTok since then, I don't think. And send it to you. I could not believe that I was hearing the exact same description of North Sea TikTok from other people besides you. <laughs> it really is a thing. I'm not alone. Everyone <laughs> thought it was crazy. <laughs> Unbelievable. That. Okay, you want to do okay, one what more? animal would you be? Wait, what animal would you be? I mean, dog? dog? I'm not really interested in any of those options, but <laughs> I kind of would. I don't know. That's scary. I was going to say I would kind of more prefer to be a sea animal, like a dolphin. But it's actually very frightening because, like, what's going on in there? Like, I don't think so. No, no, no. Um, You know, you sold me on cat. How about that? Okay. Yeah. It's it's the best option. All right. Why don't you do one more? Okay. This one will be fast, I think. Okay. This is weird. This is a weird one. But you know what? It actually aligns beautifully with our book that we've been talking about. Okay. I think I know which one it is. If I was shopping with a friend and noticed that they had shoplifted an item they could have easily afforded, I would A, tell security, B, confront them immediately and tell them to put it back, C, pretend I didn't notice, or D, wait until later to say something. Confront them immediately and tell them to put it back. Yes, but okay, <laughs> but I would not do it. I wouldn't be like, Whoa, like a big confrontation, probably be more whispered, like, what did you, why'd you just do that? And then they'd be like, what? And I'd be like, yeah. I take that, put it back. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't want her to get in trouble, right. but you also do not want to get in trouble yourself being with the person that gets caught shoplifting. And I could also see it like, because I pick my friends, you know, I feel like everybody has pretty high moral, you know, values. So I could almost uh-huh. see it being like, is that a mistake? Like, did you know you slipped that in your pocket? Put it back. I mean, I'm trying to think if I've ever, I think one time I did put something in my purse and go, whoa, like I said out loud, like, what was that? But like, I don't think a person who doesn't shoplift accidentally yeah. slips something into their purse. Usually it just doesn't happen. Okay. It, it did happen to me at the farmer's market. Um, oh, Okay. I bought a bag of sprouted mung beans. Try them out. If you've never had them, they're delicious. (laughs) (laughs) But there was like some chaos happening where like other people were buying things. And I just kind of took the bag and like literally forgot to give her the money. And then I was like halfway through the farmer's market. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't give that lady the five dollars. So I ran back and gave it to her, of course. But yeah. Yeah. I have gone back into the store before um, to pay for something I realized I took. Okay, I have. Another question sort of related. What about if you're at a restaurant and you get your check and it's like 
let's say you're expecting your bill. You're like having fun. You're drinking. You're getting food, dessert, all that. Let's say you expect your bill to be like 120, but instead it's like 60. Mm -hmm. Would you say something? They left some stuff off? Yeah. Like maybe they didn't charge you for everything or maybe it's even somebody else's tab. Oh, no, I would definitely say something. Too. That just happened to me okay. recently. You would too. Is why I asked you. It happened yeah. to you? Did you feel like such a hero when you told them? Yeah, and they let it slide. Oh. I know. I was like, oh, this seems like like we got the wrong bill. And the server was like, oh, like double checking. They're like, oh, yeah. I think they might have even said they like gave our bill to somebody else. So it's like somebody else got That's charged twice. And we were like, that's what I was thinking double. of. I was like, that money has to get paid. So if the other person already paid for you accidentally, then you just need to pay their bill. And then it's even Stevens. That's basically what happened. But I felt bad. I was like, what if the other table's still there <laughs> and then they get your higher bill and are like, wait, what? And you're already gone. I mean, it's kind of a mess for that server. So I yeah, I would tell I know. them. I just try to do my part. Yeah. 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 Look at you. <laughs> I know, really honest. Ever since my Scrabble confession, I've been trying to prove my <laughs> kindness, my um, my moral value. All right. That was Show Me You Know Me, and we're going to take a quick break and be back to discuss Age of Opportunity. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's what did you find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect for donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers Groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too.
Okay, so let's get into chapter nine of Age of Opportunity. This chapter is called Winners and Losers. And I think I should just preface this by saying it might be some sensitive topics for people. I think that Dr. Steinberg uses a lot of generalizations that sometimes don't seem very fair. Do you know what I mean, Adrian? Yeah, it was a little bit of a sad chapter, I think, for those same reasons. But, you know, I think we can look at the big picture and maybe look more at trends that he's talking about instead of personal situations or even over identifying with what he's saying. Yeah. But maybe more bigger picture. How can we support the children he's talking about instead of feeling offended or sensitive? Yeah. Sensitive is a better word. Yeah. Instead of feeling sensitive. Yeah, I agree. He starts by saying that in the U.S. and around the world, income inequality is growing and has been since the 1980s. It's well known, but what people don't know is that the problems made worse by the period of adolescence being much longer. He says it's not just financial riches, the gap, it's psychological and neurobiological. If you can afford to delay adulthood, like attending a college for a length of time, you get that longer period of neuroplasticity and your brain continues to mature, especially those higher level processes. So taking longer to become independent doesn't make you more immature. I think we have an impression that those people are immature. It actually Mm -hmm. gives you this huge advantage. And he says society benefits from this prolongation and the increased brain development that these young adults have because they build a more competent workforce. So let's take a look at the advantages some kids start off with when they're entering adolescence. Children from poor families are more likely to have cognitive deficits. He says it's not popular to acknowledge that genetics plays a factor in intelligence, but environmental factors might play an even bigger role. Extreme trauma and chronic stress that are associated with poverty can have a major impact on the prefrontal cortex but quality interventions can reduce this inequality. The brain systems that contribute to self-control are plastic for a long time and are heavily influenced by environmental factors. So if kids are exposed to trauma and toxic stress, we might see evidence of it when they enter adolescence and they really need to use those higher level executive skills, but we might not have really noticed in childhood when kids aren't expected to have a lot of self-control. He says that there have been brain imaging studies that show the difference between the brains of kids from different backgrounds. There are structural differences in the prefrontal regions of children's brains that can be linked to their parents' educational level. Early stress has had a big impact on the link between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, and that will lead to sensation seeking and difficulty controlling emotions. So people who grow up in poverty are more likely to have issues with impulse control, like substance abuse, crime, and aggression. Programs like Head Start, which started in 1965, are aimed at improving outcomes for kids from poor families, but have mostly been ineffective. Income inequality is at an all-time high, and the achievement gap is still very wide to this day. I have to say, I did not realize that Head Start was such an old program. 1965, I always kind of just assumed it started in the 80s for some reason, but it's also like really interesting looking at this information combined with the information we learned about in the last chapter that we are just like marching forward blindly 
continuing these programs without having any kind of evidence that it's working at all. Yeah. And everybody's just so bought in and nobody's questioning, like, can we do this better? It's just like a legacy program. And it's like, well, and I mean, he's not saying it doesn't help at all. But, you know, I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah. You know, it makes me think of Lisa Murphy. Yeah. Because the big point of that was it kind of seems like people's instincts and programs like Head Start are to cram academics down kids' throats at an early age, like expose them to more words and teach them to read and math and blah, 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 blah. And we don't have any evidence really that any of that works. What works is social emotional development, play, you know, and through play, that's how you develop self-regulation, right? Having to share, negotiate with your friends, work things out with other kids. You don't learn self-regulation by sitting and being ordered to do academics. That's just somebody else regulating for you completely. I don't know. It's very frustrating. Very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Okay, so recently there has been a shift in how we approach early intervention. He says that they are moving away from academics and toward teaching self-regulation, but it's unclear yet whether these programs are effective. Just in general, people are hopeful that it will reduce unemployment, increase college completion, lower the crime rate, etc. But regardless of what causes these issues in society, we can all agree that the immediate cause is people's inability to delay gratification. Yeah. So now we have the story of Robert. We don't know a lot about Robert, but he kind of describes getting to know this uh, young man, Robert, over the course of many years when they were doing a study tracking adolescents who were convicted of serious crimes in their teens or early 20s. So Dr. Steinberg says, most teenage offenders don't become adult criminals. Dangerous behavior goes down as people mature become less sensation-seeking and develop more self-regulation. The study wanted to understand the difference between adolescents who stop committing crimes and those who don't. So they interviewed these adolescents frequently, tracked their psychological development, and got reports on events in their lives. They were also given standardized psychological tests that measured things like reward-seeking and self-control. They got to know these participants really well over time. At the beginning, most of these adolescents were incredibly drawn to immediate rewards and showed little ability to control their impulses. But over time, most of them became better at regulating themselves. And those who did stopped committing crimes. But 10% of subjects became chronic adult criminals. And Robert was one of them. He spent lots of time in prison. He had a ton of therapeutic interventions, was on and off probation, and his scores on measures of impulse control didn't improve as he got older. They actually got worse. Over the course of the study, he was he went to prison for assault, drug charges, and robbery. He fathered three children with two different girlfriends by age 19. He didn't finish high school or ever hold a steady job, and total he was incarcerated five times in the seven years of the study. And Dr. Steinberg said this is because he broke all of the four rules for having a decent life, which he says is these rules are according to social science. The rules are that you stay in school long enough to graduate from high school or college if possible. Don't have children until you're married. Don't break the law and do whatever you can to avoid being idle. So always be either in school or have a job. Statistics show that if you play by these rules, you will most likely make it. You will almost never end up in poverty. 
And the rules all have two things in common, delaying gratification and that they're all choices you have to make in adolescence. So he says rule breakers would probably score higher on measures of reward sensitivity and lower on measures of self-control, regardless of their economic background. When they looked at which juvenile criminals continued to commit crimes as they got older, the most consistent factor was failure to develop mature self-control. Studies that track people from birth have found that chronic offending is related to factors that impact that development of self-regulation, like birth complications, chronic stress and trauma, poverty, harsh parenting, and early drug and alcohol use. These all interfere with development of the prefrontal cortex, so less self-control, and then more likely to commit crimes, I guess. So the four rules have the two things in common. You have to delay gratification, and then there are choices you make in adolescence. So even if you do face a choice like this later, you're more likely to approach it in a more mature manner. This is a quote from him. It is ironic that some of the most significant, life-changing, destiny-determining decisions we ever make arise at a time when our abilities to exercise good judgment are not fully developed. It was, I mean, I've never heard of the four rules. Have you heard of these? No, I mean, I don't think it was ever explicitly laid out to me. I feel like when I was reading them, I was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. I think you absorb it one way or another growing up. You either see it, you know, the benefits in front of you from people who've done that, or you kind of hear like, go to college, go to college, you know? Yeah. But I feel like also the way things are just trending in life, people are just waiting longer to get married. People are waiting longer to start their careers or waiting longer to have kids. Yeah. At least I know that that's the way the statistics are trending. So yeah, I've not heard that. I did not ever get a lecture about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, once again, it's like, you can take you can listen to these and you can have a reaction to them and kind of be like whoa 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 you know but it's basically like the overall trends in society right are people who stay in school wait to have kids don't break the law and are always working or a student and i feel like you could throw in you're not idle if you're taking care of kids right I don't know I know okay I yeah know. but the four rules laying them out like that does just it has kind of like a harsh has a harsh sound to it yeah I get that so then he describes the coercive cycle kids develop self-control when they have parents who are caring and affectionate but also have rules and expectations and enforce them consistently authoritative parents children who have parents who are hostile distant mm. erratic controlling too lenient or harsh are likely going to have difficulty with self-regulation. If you use physical force or are too emotional when you're punishing a child, they'll have difficulty with self-control. So it's better to be calm and gentle while maintaining authority. He says that poor parents have less time to invest into cultivation of self-regulation skills than wealthier parents do. It's not the case for all parents, of course, but generally, they're more likely to use harsh discipline and physical punishment. There's more inconsistency in the way they enforce rules. But it's also important to note, he says, that middle and upper class parents are not always going to be kind, warm, understanding, and consistent. These are just general stereotypes. Like, can we even say stereotype? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the factors that contribute to this are higher levels of stress living in a maybe a more dangerous community, 
being more likely to be a single parent, having fewer resources that allow you to take alone time or have a break, being less likely to have good self-control skills yourself because of the environment you were raised in, and the parent's behavior is shaped by what the children do. So he says, the kids have less self-regulation, so they're more disobedient. And then the parents react similarly, maybe flying off the handle because their kid is difficult. Yeah. And this starts the cycle. Harsh or inconsistent parenting produces problematic behavior, which creates more harsh and inconsistent parenting. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, like, I really was resonating with that when I was reading that. I just think it is really hard to be a consistent and fair parent when you are really stressed out yourself. Yeah. It's really hard because parenting, like if you have a teen that's out of control and staying out past their curfew and skipping school and stealing, like doing all these things and you're trying to put out every fire and they're pushing back and you are the breadwinner for the household and maybe working two jobs and really stressed out and worried that you're not going to be able to pay rent or get food on the table. That is all really overwhelming and contributes to not wanting to fight with your child. So it's like, oh, this is the last thing. Fine, do whatever. Yeah. And I really see how that's a cycle that can just keep continuing and continuing. And it's hard. And I do wish that there was more support, you know, for single parents or parents who are financially constrained like that or just dealing with a lot of stress. I mean, not to say that wealthy and middle class parents are not stressed out. And he says that in the book, like this is not the black and white situation, but, you know, middle class and upper class people, they can afford babysitters. They can afford to take time off work. They can send their children to a therapist or themselves to a therapist. Yeah. So, you know, there is and I like that he really pointed that out in the book, like there is advantages to having money that spread to all areas of life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this did make me think of when I worked with some kids who I'm thinking of one kid in particular who was challenging, but you think about the way the parent was parenting him versus he had a sister who was like no behavior problems, an older sister. And I can just remember the mom being like, oh, that's my angel. <laughs> you could just see that. I was saying that in front of him too? Uh, he wasn't paying attention. Just saying it to oh. me. Like, oh, yeah, that's my daughter. So do you know my daughter? Like, she's my angel. Like, she helps me so much, you know. And you could just see like her being worn down by the kid with the behavior that was really, really challenging for her. And then so you can see the cycle too. Like if she had just had two of the daughter <laughs> would right. would she be a different type of mom or was she just being like was the stress and then the way the kid was acting contributing to how she was parenting I don't know yeah there's so much complexity here you can't just say it's this thing or it's this exactly it's not black and white right yeah yeah yes exactly all right so now let's get into poverty and puberty Kids from low SES backgrounds are less equipped to respond to the neurobiological changes that take place during puberty. So remember, puberty is happening earlier when kids have even less ability to regulate their emotions and behavior, and the prefrontal cortex is not developing earlier. So there's that wider gap between when they start puberty and when they develop those really strong self-regulation skills. And because poor children are more likely to already have weaker self-control, they're at an even bigger disadvantage when they start puberty earlier. 
and poor kids enter puberty earlier than others, which I was almost going to leave this out, but it was too fascinating. So he says, you would think poverty would slow growth and development because earlier puberty used to be associated with better nutrition and health. So it used right. to be that poor kids hit puberty later, but he says this is still the case when they study developing countries today, but it's right. flip-flopped in developed modern societies. Right. So today in modern developed society, it's childhood obesity, exposure to artificial light, higher rates of father absence, which he just threw in there. And I don't think he's said that before. He did. He talked about that. In the, in the chapter where he was like laying out in the beginning, he said... I remember he said stress. He said, households that have an absent father will have a single mother who may be bringing around strange men, meaning unfamiliar men, not their father, which would cause teenage girls to produce more of the hormones that will lead more to early onset of puberty. Do you remember if he said this was a study or is this just like anecdotal? I can't remember, but it was in that chapter okay. where he was laying everything out about the light and everything like that. Uh, because, okay. of course, I was like alarmed. Just... When, when I read this, it just was like higher rates of father absence. And I was like, wait, have you? But I'm Maybe like I this, blocked that part. What if your dad it? has a lot of friends? What if your dad has a lot of male friends and you host a lot of parties and there's like yeah. a lot of guys hanging out at the house? Yeah. I know that he did say that though. He did. Okay. <laughs> and sorry, exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals. Uh, these are all the factors that have the biggest impact on early onset of puberty. And these are all more prevalent in poor communities. The next part is called protection during a tenuous time. So we know that self-control develops throughout adolescence, but can be easily impacted by factors like stress or fatigue. External control provided by parents is the best way to prevent lapses in self-control. So closer relationships with and monitoring by parents is linked to less problem behaviors in adolescence. Authoritative parenting is the way to go. If you monitor your child closely and keep them from hanging out with older peers, they are less likely to experiment with things that they might be inclined to do, like drugs or sex. If a child matures early but is closely supervised by a parent, they aren't at greater risk for engaging in those behaviors. Basically, if a child matures early and is unsupervised and starts hanging out with older peers, then they could get into a lot of trouble. Adolescents who have trouble managing themselves benefit from having parents who can do it for them. So be strict, be warm, and supervise your kids. Adolescents from poor families are less likely to get help managing self-control from their parents and from the social institutions they go to. If they aren't supervised after school, they're more likely to get into trouble. Poor kids spend more unstructured, unsupervised time after school, which he says leads to antisocial peer groups forming. I think that's a way of saying gangs. Yeah, I'm assuming so. Middle class kids are more likely to be involved in structured activities like sports, jobs, theater, private lessons. So what we have is kids who enter adolescence at an advantage and then are given more opportunities to further develop their skills like self-control. So then they have this massive advantage in school, both in high school and beyond. 
And then attending college, if that's the route they go, gives them the opportunity to develop even better self-regulation. So we need to be paying more attention to the fact that poor children are being deprived of environmental stimulation, not just in early childhood, but in adolescence. And privilege also provides rich kids protection when they go to college if they flail around for a little bit. Longer adolescence is more advantageous for the privileged because the impact of delayed adulthood on self-control is really positive. You gain human capital, so the skills you've developed that will help you in school and at work, cultural capital, which is knowing, which is having knowledge and manners of ways of behaving, and then social capital, which are like your networking skills, your connections with others and psychological capital. These are non-cognitive skills like social intelligence, vitality, enthusiasm, and self-regulation, which can be just as important as intelligence or talent. And then he adds another one, neurobiological capital, which is the advantage from having a longer period of brain plasticity in a stimulating environment. A lot of people worry that delayed adulthood is a problem psychologically, but studies have shown that today's generation is just as happy and satisfied as previous generations who entered adulthood earlier. Levels of happiness and satisfaction are not correlated with the age at which people complete milestones moving into adulthood. So having kids at a later age, for example, is correlated with higher levels of happiness. We should be focused on helping young adults participate in activities that stimulate brain development. These include making college more accessible, apprenticeships, and community service opportunities. And we should also be focusing on developing self-regulation through early intervention, parent education, and school programs. And then he ends by saying, we also need to take a look at how we as a society treat adolescents, which is what we'll be doing in the next chapter. So this made me think a little bit, you know, it got my got my wheels turning. I was thinking about the first school I worked at for the first two years of my career. I remember being really impressed. This kindergarten teacher uh, who had been at the school for a long time, great teacher, was in charge of career day. And I remember he sought me out and was like, do you know anybody who could come for career day? And it was such a passion of his because he was like, you know, in this community, when you ask any kid what they want to be, all they say, the only careers they know are like teacher, policeman, fireman, nurse. I don't know. He, he like named a few, you know, he was like, that's that's kind of like the only impression of like what it means to yeah. succeed to them. And I love to get I always ask, like, if mm. you have a husband or somebody who works. And I always thought about that, like I kind of because my fiance works in TV, like we live in L.A. Yeah. And I always think about there should be programs for adolescents based on where they live and like the industry that's big to be involved and seeing, I don't know, production assistant type stuff, making, right. I don't know. That there's just other options that have to do with the industries where we live, right? Yeah. Just exposure, yeah. having programs. Okay. We know that there's this unstructured after school time, like having programs around that you could be involved in, free programs, where you can learn skills, like get really passionate about something. seems like that's the answer. Having stimulating, exciting stuff for them to do. I know. And I know that there are programs that, I mean, I, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm such a proponent of trade schools. Yeah. And not even like, I have a couple friends who went to art school and that was their entry into film, you know. 
and the TV and like production industry, but trade schools for welders, for plumbers, for electricians, for iron workers, all of these jobs that are really necessary and that are actually pretty lucrative. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel like are really presented as options because everybody just hammers on like college, 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 when actually trade schools might be such a better fit for a lot of kids out there. So I know that some schools have programs that are kind of like partnering with community colleges where kids can do some work towards trades like that. But yeah, I just wish people talked about it more. I try to talk about it with my kids at the middle school level when we say like, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, I try to emphasize like, you know, there's other options. Yeah, because the other thing I was starting to hear a lot was, what do you want to be when you grow up? A YouTuber. And you're like, okay. I heard that all the time (laughs) with elementary school kids, all the time. Yeah. I mean, social media influencing YouTube, it's all just like made, made people think, well, I don't really have to do anything. Like I can just (laughs) make videos. I don't know. And can just be a jokester. How many people does that work for really? And you know what? I did the RSP teacher at that school. I'm talking about her husband was a plumber and I sat in on one of his presentations on career day and it was so fun. And he got the kids really fired up about plumbing and I was a little fired up about it. (laughs) I love that. You're like, I'm going back to school. I'm going to be a plumber. He brought in like all these pipes and tools and like was showing them how things fit together. I mean, it was cool. And yeah, that is the thing. Like, I don't know. Getting them, I don't know. I know. And now that we know about all these problems, I feel like I'm like looking around for like, where are their solutions? Is anybody trying to, you know, are there any after school programs that are kind of geared towards at risk kids? Or where is the respite for single parents? And it's just like not there, you know? Yeah, exactly. I feel like Dr. Steinberg is like so, he's so high on college. And I've been thinking a lot about my college, you know. I kind of look back on it and now I can appreciate that like, yeah, maybe I did build some skills. I didn't, other than needing a degree to go back to school, I didn't take courses in my undergrad that led to my career. Nothing, nothing I took relates to my career at all. Right. So college for me really was just a time of, I guess, developing these skills he's talking about. And yes, that is great. I actually think that recently it seems to be like a switch towards a lot of people being really down on college, right? Don't you feel that? I've been hearing, I feel like I've been hearing more of that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I've been hearing more of that for sure. Just like, why are we spending so much money on this? But maybe we do need to be saying it's not even about the coursework. It's the dedication, the motivation, perseverance, like working towards something and then developing that independence, taking care of signing up for your classes on the right day in the right window of time. So you make sure you get, you know, it's like all these little pieces that kind of prepare you for life during this window of plasticity. So I know. Well, I'm still like waiting, like Dr. Steinberg, let's talk. I know we got a little bit into like the how to, you know, from the parenting angle, a little bit for the high school too. But I'm here for more information about how we as a society can help. So I think we're running out of time, Adrian. I think we already (laughs) got what we're going to get. (laughs) (laughs) I think the last two chapters on parenting and what the schools can do is like, but he did say, just wait for chapter nine, right? The last chapter, something about. For ways to prevent the puberty, which we talked about. The early puberty. Yeah. Dr. Steinberg. I mean, I don't know. I think 
I think that we can revisit. I want to reread a little bit from like the last two chapters with the schools and the parenting to come up with ideas for what SLPs could be doing and teachers can be doing to build these skills that kids need. I don't know. We'll see because we do need to get some good takeaways. So chapter 10 called Brains on Trial. It looks like court cases. Yeah, it's about how we respond to young people who break the law. Well, that should be positive. <laughs> should be great. <laughs> and then chapter 10 is the conclusion. Okay. That's oh, it. he does have some information for employers and educators. So at the end. in the conclusion. So, but yeah, I think I guess Dr. Steinberg's probably feeling the weight of the fact that this is a societal problem and to change a societal problem will take so much effort but you know it can start with us we can shift our expectations i would love to look more into how you can increase grit in children um, and perseverance maybe that's a good idea for a book for us in the future yeah maybe i need to take another look at that book how children succeed yeah that might be i would love some tangible activities or something we could do some ideas for how to help kids. So maybe we'll do some research and see what we can come up with about that. Yeah. All right. Okay. okay. That is it for this episode. Next week, we'll be wrapping up Age of Opportunity. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. Thanks for listening to this episode of the SLP Book Club. If you love what we're doing, the best way to show your support is by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to join the discussion, head to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Each week, we're posting about the topics we discuss, and we'd love for you to weigh in. Want to listen to episodes early and ad-free, plus get one free resource from my TPT store each month? Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club and join our Patreon for only $3.